Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. And so Simeon knew this. He knew the Scriptures. He knew Isaiah 9-2. Isaiah 9-2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. He knew that this coming Messiah was to be light in darkness. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about the conditions in Israel at the time that Jesus was born. Under the thumb of the Herods, under the oppressive fist of the Roman Empire, the corruption, the darkness of it all, the nation coming apart at the seams in so many ways, no hope. Into this, Jesus was being born, and Simeon recognizes it. This little baby is the hope of Israel. He's the light shining in darkness. You know, Jesus wants to be the light shining in darkness in this world around us. And this world is growing darker. It's not going to get lighter. I already laid out for you the case that, that, that humans by nature are sinful. And so sinful human beings are not going to create a better world. It's only going to get worse. There's darkness around us. And, and look, you and I are here today so that we can share, like Simeon, this is the light. We can point to Jesus and hold him up before this world, hopefully by reflecting him in our lives, not just with our words, but holding up before this dark, in this darkness of this world where it is. This is the hope. This is the light shining in darkness. Come to the light. Come to the light. That's what you and I are here for. We're not to be overcome by darkness. We're to bring light in the midst of the darkness. And that light is Jesus. Simeon recognized that he knew Isaiah 42 and verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, the nation of Israel and to the Gentiles, to the whole world. Isaiah 49 and verse 6. Isaiah 49 and verse 6, indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. It's, it's not just for this one nation, it's for the world, Isaiah says. Simeon knew this. Simeon knew Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. 60 verses 1 through 3 of Isaiah. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Simeon knew these things. He knew these things as he looked at this Messiah, this baby who was the Messiah because he knew the scriptures and what they spoke of what Messiah would do. And now finally, he's seeing his expectations fulfilled as he looks upon this tiny eight-day-old baby, and the Spirit reveals to him that this is the Messiah of Israel and the world. And with this revelation, Simeon could truly rest in peace whenever the Lord was ready to call him home. He could rest in peace when the Lord was ready to call him home. An unknown poet once wrote a poem that eloquently captures what had to be Simeon's heart in this moment. It goes like this. I fear no sin. 
I dread no death. I have lived long enough. I have my life. I have longed enough. I have my love. I have seen long enough. I have my light. I have served enough. I have my saint. I have sorrowed enough. I have my joy. Sweet babe, let this psalm serve as a lullaby to thee and for a funeral for me. Oh, sleep in my arms and let me sleep in thy peace. Had to be his heart in that moment. And I pray it's our hearts as well. Not that we'd long for death. Like Paul, you and I are are probably torn, you know. For one hand, we want to be with the Lord. On the other hand, we know that we're here for a reason in this life. And yet... The peace that Simeon had in this moment should be the peace that all of us have. And if you're in Christ, there is no reason you should not have this peace. To know that your eyes have seen fulfilled in your own life who this Messiah is, what he's done for you. And now when the Lord's ready to call you home, whether by death or rapture, you'd be ready to go. And in the meantime, we serve. Amen. But we have peace. We have peace. We have peace. So to Simeon. We'll look on at verse 33. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And keep in mind, although Joseph and Mary had been informed by God of what he was doing and who this baby was, their understanding was still murky. And we've talked about this a lot before. You know, just just murky. And they're just storing it up. They're just remembering. And sooner or later, trusting the Lord will make it clear for them. It says in verse 34, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And so finally, Simeon leaves Mary with a prophetic warning. And note that it's, it's not a warning in the sense that she's being told to do something to avoid what he's telling her is going to happen. Sometimes prophetic warnings are for that reason. But, but here it's simply a prophetic warning to prepare her for what's coming. You know, I like how God oftentimes tells people in advance of things to come in order to prepare them. You know, God knows the beginning from the end of everything in human history and in our lives. You know, we're told in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 11, Isaiah 46, 8 through 11, remember this and show yourselves, men, recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Isaiah says, man, this is the Lord. The Lord knows the beginning of the parade from the end of the parade. He sees it all. He knows. And he can declare it. He can tell us. And it will come to pass. But every time he tells us something, it's not always to get us to respond in such a way to avoid what's coming, but to simply make us aware so we're not overwhelmed when it comes. You know, I believe that's the whole point of the book of Matthew chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse where the disciples come to Jesus and they say, tell us what will be the signs of your coming and of the last days? What will it be? And Jesus goes through this litany of things in detail and yet not with all the specifics of how it would unfold. But he gives them the things that they're to watch for. But then he also says to them repeatedly in each of the Gospels, he says to them, but don't be troubled because these things have to happen. 
Clearly, he's telling them not that they were to react to it, not that they were to do something specifically to avoid what was coming, but to simply make them aware of things that would come. And we know some of those things. Wars and rumors of wars. The birth pangs, right? Wars and rumors of wars. Uh, False Christ coming in his name. Famines, earthquakes in diverse places. Kingdoms rising up against kingdoms. Nations against nations. He goes through all these things. Why? So that we can do something about it? No so that we won't be blown away when we begin to see it happen. You know, we're not going to see all of the things that he proclaims to us in the prophetic word happen as his church, because we'll be gone for when the tribulation begins through the rapture. But at the same time, we do see things beginning to unfold in our world in a lot of ways. And and sadly, in Christianity today, it seems like some Christians who are aware of the things that God has warned them are coming, are, are taking his warning almost as a mandate to do everything they can to usurp it from taking place. I am amazed by all of the social media posts that call people out by name as being patsies of the Antichrist. And the tone of those articles, it it seems to be conveying the idea that we need to do everything we can to stop them. Now, first, let me clarify what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that we shouldn't curb evil, that we shouldn't be used of the Lord to, to stand up against evil and wrong. I'm not saying that, but it's almost like we're trying to usurp things that we know the scriptures say are coming. We got to do something about it to make that not happen. First, let me just say this. A lot of the attributions that are being made today are suspect in themselves, you know, as to whether or not they're actually good attributions of what people are seeing. But second, even if they're right about, in particular, about people and what they're doing, why in the world would we feel compelled to stop them if we believe it's something prophetic? I mean, stopping them from doing what prophecy says Antichrist must come and do is not to resist Antichrist, but it's resisting God himself by trying to stop the events from unfolding that God has told us clearly in his word must unfold. These things must be, but don't be troubled by it. I think Christians have watched too many of those end-time movies where the hero of the story seems to be doing everything he he can to kill the Antichrist. That guy's the Antichrist. I recognize him. I see the 666 under his hairline. I need to drive a stake through his heart or shoot him in the head. I need to do something to stop him. Have you ever noticed, even in those movies, it never seems to work out? I wonder why. Look, no, God warns sometimes, he warns his people not to get us to respond in such a way to make it stop from happening, but he warns us so that we will know and not be upended by it all when it begins to happen, which is exactly what Simeon's prophecy is now intended to do for Mary. It's a warning to her so that she's prepared for the things she will see as she watches her son and her Messiah, Jesus, growing up and what will happen to him as he departs this earth. And by the way, you will note that he speaks prophetically to Mary, not to Joseph. Why? Some suggest because what he's about to say has to do more to a mother's heart. I suggest it's because it will have no relevance to Joseph because he won't be here when a lot of it will happen. There's no record of Joseph Joseph at Jesus' crucifixion. There's no evidence that he divorced Mary and moved on. We know he didn't do that, so there can only be one other conclusion. And it's a logical and a right conclusion that Joseph died. Even though the scriptures are silent, we have no reason not to believe that Joseph is not present because Joseph has gone home to be with the Lord. And so this prophecy is to Mary. But what's the warning he gives Mary? Well, he gives her a sobering warning predicting that because of her child Jesus, many in Israel are going to be brought to a choice that's going to result in some falling spiritually and some rising spiritually. It's interesting to note the phrase Simeon uses, the fall, is a clear reference to God's universal redemption plan. 
which will be manifested by, by this suffering Messiah, Jesus, but which will not be easy for many people to believe or accept, especially the unbelieving Jews who will be made to stumble by Jesus and his message of hope that he's come to give. And to this group in particular, he will be the stone which the builders rejected. And, and how they or anyone responds will ultimately determine and seal their spiritual fate. It will determine whether one rises or one falls. Those who reject him will fall. Those who receive him will rise. And that phrase there, what Simeon uses, and rise, it's the same Greek term translated resurrection in other places of Scripture. And that's what Jesus will be to people. He will be the only way to be right with God. And, 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 and by being right with God, it's the only way to rise. And the only way to be right with God is to trust in Jesus and in what he's done for us. And by placing that faith in him, we rise. As John 6.40 so clearly tells us, John 6.40, And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, resurrected life, risen life, and I will raise him up at that last day. The resurrection, the rising, only comes through our faith in Jesus, but to reject him, we fall. And so Simeon tells Mary that what her child has been born into this world to do you know, he's going to come to, to, to proclaim a way of resurrection to people. But if they refuse him, some will, and they're going to fall. But those who receive him, they're going to rise. But then he also tells her that it will come at a high cost, as, as her son will become the focus of hostility and hatred. And, and, and by many who are just not going to receive his ministry, who will ultimately reject him, that, that this will prove to be wounding both to him and to her. They're not just going to reject his message. They're going to reject him and spitefully treat him, torture him, kill him, brutally kill him. And that wounding of him will also wound Mary personally. Remember this, even though Jesus will become Mary's much needed savior, he also will still be her son. He's going to be both to her. And how difficult that will be for her as she will have to watch firsthand what the sinfully fallen world will do to her son and to her Messiah. Hmm. Well, look on. Verse 36. Now, there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with her with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. And so now we're introduced to just one more person in this divinely appointed encounter in the temple. Another one right here. And this person is Anna. Now, a number of things that were worth noting about Anna. Number one. It tells us in verse 36 that she's a prophetess, a prophetess. This is, a, uh, this is rather unique considering the fact that there really hadn't been any prophets since Malachi until now, preceding even John the Baptist, right? And she's clearly preceding John the Baptist. So she's really not the last of the Old Testament prophets, but the next to the last. And, and the fact that Anna is identified in such a role is unique in itself because even though women held various spiritual positions similar to this in the Old Testament, it still wasn't all that common to find women in these kinds of roles. 
This just reminds us that even though there are scriptural roles women are prohibited from filling by the scriptures, there are far more roles that they are permitted to fill and to be used by God powerfully in those roles. And so here is Anna filling one of those roles. Now, in Anna's case, we don't know in what capacity Anna was a prophetess, but maybe it was in the way that she gives this specific prophetic testimony about Jesus' arrival. Maybe this is the very prophecy for which she's been raised up as a prophetess to give. We don't know that, but she's called a prophetess. In verse 36, we're also told that she's the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Now, Asher is one of the 10 northern tribes of Israel that had been carried away into exile by the Assyrians back in 722 BC, and they'd seemingly ceased to exist. They'd seemingly been integrated into all these other pagan societies and that they no longer consisted as individual tribes. And yet, here in this moment is the representative of one of these tribes, and she knows her tribal affiliation. Now, why do I point that out? Because this just proves that there are no lost tribes of Israel, as some people teach. God knows where each and every one of the tribes are, and he can make them represented again at any point in time in which he so chooses. As we looked at the book of Revelation, we know that during the tribulation time, those tribes will exist again. How the Jews will know, I don't know. But I know this, God knows. He's going to put it on their hearts, and those tribes will consist again, just as she knew, even though her tribe had pretty much been assimilated into other civilizations. Number three, verse 37 tells us she was of great age. I mean, she was old, right? Nobody's ever supposed to say how old a woman is, but they even tell us she's 84, about 84 years old, right around 84. And so this aged woman we see has devoted her life to the service of the Lord And she's patiently waiting on him. You know, this puts to rest the notion that there's retirement in the service of the Lord. That somehow, you know, we, 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 at some point in our lives, we just kind of stop serving the Lord and enjoy life. Look, enjoying life is serving the Lord. And even if it's not, we were called to serve him. This notion of retirement is, is, is a notion of the world. It's not a, a notion in God's economy. It doesn't mean that the positions we hold, for example, for me as a pastor, it doesn't mean it gets to be a place where I look and say, you know what, this is just not the call for me. The Lord's raising up another generation to do this if he tarries and for me to step aside. But I will tell you this, I may no longer be a pastor standing behind a pulpit, but I'm not retiring from the service of the Lord. I'm not retiring until I take my last breath. I'm not going to retire in serving him, and nor should you. Until that last breath is drawn, we should not cease serving him. This is Anna, 84 years old, great of age, serving the Lord. Number four, she was married once and only one time because it tells us very specifically in verse 36 from her virginity. So she's married, but verse 37 tells us that she had become a widow. She'd become a widow. And why is that an important point to note? Because sometimes when we lose a loved one, whether it be a spouse, in particular a spouse, but to lose a loved one in our lives, sometimes I've seen people's lives come to a complete stop. Christians, their lives come to a complete halt spiritually. But not Anna. Not Anna. The loss of her husband. Look at Anna. The loss of her husband just seemed to give her more time to devote herself to the Lord You know, I've often said in counseling, in in dealing with grief of those who've lost spouses, in particular to women, 
You know, it's not that it's untrue for men, but it's especially applicable to women that, you know, life does stop in many cases for them in the process. And, and I've looked at them and said, you know what, today the Lord has just become your husband. Serve him. Serve him like you served your husband. Serve him even more than you served your husband. Serve him. Wait on him. Serve him. He's now your husband. He's your comfort. He's your shelter. He's your covering. Anna clearly saw that. Well, not Jesus, but she took the Lord on in that role, and she continued to serve even in the loss of a spouse. It did not stop her, nor should it stop any of us. And finally, number five, we're told in verse 37, she didn't depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. Note the things that God considers service here in that verse. Oh, it's greeting people at the door. Oh, it's cleaning my church. Oh, it's teaching a Bible study. Oh, it's teaching Sunday school. Oh, it's going down and feeding the poor. Oh, it's going. Those are all good. But that's not all service either. Here he says that service to God for her was fastings and prayers. You know, we sometimes think of our service to the Lord involving all sorts of activities and in particular roles, titles. And yet here is a, a great servant. I mean, she's being held up as a great servant before us, a prophetess of God. And look at what her service is, faithfully doing these disciplines, these simple disciplines of the faith, simple to us, not simple to God. The simple disciplines of the faith. Look, I don't know your situation. I know many people in our fellowship have all kinds of, of physical issues and things that prevent them from doing what, what they see others doing. And sometimes they feel really bad about that. I, I can't do what they do. But you know what? You might not be able to get around because of your health or other issues in your life and other constraints. And you might look at others and see them as doing all sorts of works in their services for the Lord. And you think you have nothing to offer. But I would say to you, can you fast? Can you pray? Can you do these things? Because if you can, then you can serve the Lord in a powerful way. Well, pastor, I, because of my health, I have to have certain nutrition. I can't fast in the same way. Well, then let me ask you this. Can you pray? There's nothing in our health condition that keeps us from that. Can you pray? Don't sit around wishing you could do more. Don't sit around doing that. Maybe there are things the Lord will have you do. But you know what? Don't sit around comparing yourself to others. And certainly don't sit around wishing you could do more. Start fasting. Start praying. And watch how the Lord will use that ministry powerfully for his service. I'm undergirded by prayer of people in this fellowship. Even while I'm teaching right now, I know there's people praying for me. And I can't tell you how much that affects what comes from this pulpit. How it's affecting people that are listening today. Because somebody's praying, because somebody's lifting up, you can do these things. And if you can do these things, you can serve the Lord powerfully. And this is Anna. This is her. And now like Simeon, she just so happens to be in the temple when Joseph and Mary bring Jesus in to be circumcised, that divine encounter, that divine intersection. And like Simeon, she too immediately recognizes him for who he is. And she immediately begins to give praise to the Lord. And then she performs one other service before we end, one other service. Look what it tells us. She speaks of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. She speaks of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Maybe there are lots of things you can't do to serve the Lord, but can you do this? Can you tell others about Jesus? You don't have to be a theologian. 
Can you tell them about who Jesus is, who he is to you, why you have placed your faith in him, what he has done for you as you've placed your faith in him? Can you tell others about Jesus? Because if you can, then you can serve the Lord powerfully, just like Anna is serving him. Wow. I like how John Corson, in his commentary, he summed this up. He said it so well. He said this. He said, after losing her husband, Anna could have become bitter. Instead, she became better and blessed. Rather than simply becoming old and fatigued, she kept about her such a high degree of vitality and spirituality that she was chosen singularly of all women to be the prophetess who recognized Jesus as Messiah. Why? I believe the text gives us three reasons. Anna prayed to the Lord. Anna prayed to the Lord. She didn't give herself over to bemoaning her loss. Rather, she said, I'm going to use my single state as an opportunity to give myself to God completely and wholeheartedly. Second, Anna looked for the Lord. Anna looked for the Lord. Like Simeon, she lived in anticipation of the coming Messiah. Number three. Anna talked about the Lord. She talked about the Lord. Not only did she worship like Simeon, but she spoke of him to all that looked for redemption. So too, if I am truly worshiping, if you are truly worshiping, you cannot help but to witness and talk to people about the Lord like Anna did. And that is service. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.